Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. This is a special episode of Strict Scrutiny, commemorating the life and brilliant career of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away at the age of 87 on Friday, September 18th, 2020. I'm Leah Littman. I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Kate Shaw. So on Friday night, the evening before Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year began, we learned that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away from complications from metastatic pancreatic cancer. We knew, of course, that during the court's most recent sitting in May, she had participated in arguments from her hospital bed. And in July, we learned that during that hospital stay, they had discovered that cancer had spread to her liver and that initial treatments were unsuccessful. But still, I think most people were unprepared for her passing. It was like a day we knew on some level might happen, but couldn't bring ourselves to actually think that it would, um, maybe because she had defied impossibly long odds at so many points during her career. With that in mind, we are joined today by Anne Joseph O'Connell, who is the Adelbert H. Sweet Law Professor at Stanford Law School and a former clerk to Justice Ginsburg from the October 2003 term. So Anne, welcome to the show and many condolences on this loss. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So when the news broke of Justice Ginsburg's death, conversation turned immediately, right, to questions about the impact on the election, when the president might nominate someone to replace her, who that nominee might be. And we, of course, understand that instinct. But we also want to spend a little bit of time talking first about Justice Ginsburg's extraordinary life and legacy. Um, And then I think at the end of the conversation, we'll turn to some thoughts on what might happen next. Um, But for the first part of the conversation, Anne, we're so happy to have you with us. Uh, So you clerked for the justice in the 2003 term, as Melissa just said. What was it like to work for her? It was an amazing opportunity. Sort of every day when I walked into the court, I would pause as soon as I entered the building to think that just a whole combination of factors and a lot of luck had led me there. Um, And to have the the experience of working uh, for one of my idols was an incredible one. I mean, some things that immediately come to mind um, is her physical size. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, um, but I'm somewhat small, but the justice was even smaller. Um, And both in height uh, and in um, weight um, and could look quite frail, but beyond the physical appearance, she had this strength uh, and the strength didn't come in loud words uh, or in brash movements. Um, It was sort of a very quiet uh, strength. Um, so that's something that that struck me. Um, what also struck me is just how hard she worked and the hours in which she worked. Um, it was actually a match for me. Um, I'd spent many summers in high school and college working for the U.S. Army where the workday started, uh, you know, before seven. Um, you know, if you turned up to work at 7.30, you were late. Um, but the justice was a night owl. And so she was often uh, seen driving, this is at a time where she drove herself to the court for oral arguments, um, driving down Constitution Avenue just moments before 10 a.m. just to sneak in uh, right before oral argument. And she did most of her work between midnight and 4 a.m. And because I like those hours too, um, and I was often in chambers uh, in those hours, 
um, she would call and we would have these wonderfully long conversations uh, in the wee hours uh, of the night. So what was her relationship like with the law clerks? Um, What were those wonderfully long conversations about in the wee hours of the night? Mostly about the work. She was she was in the details, you know, and and every word she cared about Um, and both in terms of preparing for oral argument and then, of course, with regard uh, to opinion drafting. Um, So a lot of it was just on the work and getting the work right. I mean, she was a very demanding boss. Um, um, I think she had gone through so much to get where she was um, and she wanted to make sure that the work that came out of chambers was of the highest possible quality. Now, sometimes those conversations um, were not about work and they were about theater uh, or opera. Um, And so, you know, sometimes she would speak about that uh, as well. Now, I always got the sense, and I remember um, she had a reputation for being very exacting, right, when it came to her, you know, interactions with her law clerks, her standards were unbelievably high. Um, but it always seemed to me that that must have been because there was never any room for error on her on her own ascent, right? She was required to hold herself to these just unbelievably high standards in order to do and achieve the things that she had done. Um, and so she sort of held everyone around her to the same kinds of standards. That's right. And not just her clerks. I remember a story. I also clerked for Judge Williams, um, who sadly passed uh, in August uh, from COVID-19. And uh, Judge Williams had been then Judge Ginsburg's colleague on the D.C. Circuit. And he remarked that she, when he circulated opinions, uh, would line edit his opinions uh, and send them back to him. So she she kept everyone (laughs) to account. (laughs) Yeah. So much has been made of her very warm relationship with Justice Scalia, who, as we know, was sort of her ideological opposite on the court. Um, but in the wake of her passing, there have been some really lovely statements from her other colleagues. So Justice Breyer noted that um, he was reciting the mourner's Kaddish at Rosh Hashanah service. And when he heard of her passing, he thought, a great justice, a woman of valor, a rock of righteousness, and my good, good friend, the world is a better place for her having lived in it. And Justice Sotomayor, um, who in this last term was often alone with Justice Ginsburg and dissenting from some of the decisions of the court, noted that her dear friend and colleague was an American hero, a path-breaking champion of women's rights who served our country in court with consummate dedication, tirelessness, and passion for justice. Um, Can you say a little bit about her work with her colleagues? I mean, we all know about her friendship with Justice Scalia, but What about the rest of her time on the court and the rest of her colleagues? Yeah, if I could just share one quick story about Justice Scalia and the friendship with Justice Ginsburg. On her birthday, um, I remember sitting in chambers and I had the desk closest to the front door of chambers of among the four clerks. And I heard this booming voice coming down the hall, Ruth, Ruth, my dear Ruth. And the floor was sort of pounding like the person was semi running. Uh, And in came Justice Scalia with this huge bouquet of roses uh, for the justice. Um, And so she and Marty, who was still alive at the time I was clerking, um, were very close uh, with Justice Scalia and his wife. Um, But she seemed to have warm friendships uh, with her her other colleagues uh, on the court. Um, And she was very respectful uh, of all of them. Um, and encouraged the clerks. There are opportunities for the clerks to sort of take each justice out for lunch or to have some interaction with the other justices. And I do remember once uh, this, my co-clerks and I went to lunch with Justice Thomas and we got in this several hour conversation. I think in in part, I, I grew up in a devout Catholic family and Justice Thomas almost became a priest. Anyways, we spent hours in conversation with Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg actually had to telephone and kind of get us back to chambers. We were we were gone f- for so long, but I think she was hesitant to do that. But it had just go, you know gone on for us for so long. It's funny, um, in the last couple of years, she had become increasingly frail. And I always um, thought it was interesting when she would step down from the bench at oral arguments, it was Justice Thomas who often offered her his arm to assist her down, which I thought was very sweet as well. 
you mentioned her kind of small stature, Anne, and one of my favorite visuals from my year at the court was seeing Justice Ginsburg kind of waddle down the hallway carrying the cookie tray um, after the justices' conferences back to her chamber. So it was this like huge tray that honestly was probably her size, and it was all the leftover sweets from the justices' conference, and she had a really big sweet tooth. And so she would take all the leftover cookies um, and bring them back to her chambers. <laughs> I wonder if did Marty bake those cookies? Because he, of course, was the baker in the family. Well, so this was after Marty had yeah. passed away. Um, oh, when you were right. there, I see. Okay. When we, I asked because when, when I was there, I mean, it was it was while Marty was still alive and the, the time that my co-clerks and I got to, you know, sit and have a meal with Justice Ginsburg instead of a lunch out, it was a high tea in her chambers with this unbelievable almond cake that yes. Marty had baked. Yes. Um, so like, I still remember the flavor of it. It's amazing. Um, so, Anne, was your clerkship the first time you had interacted with Justice Ginsburg or seen the justice? No, it was sort of a... a a wonderful combination of factors. I had, even though I had grown up um, outside of Washington, D.C., I had never stepped foot uh, in the Supreme Court uh, until after my first summer of law school. Um, and that summer I was working uh, for the general counsel of the, de- the Department of Defense. And they suggested, um, you know, you should just go hear decisions come down from the court. And so one day I went, I stood in the public line, I got a seat, and that day um, Justice Ginsburg announced her opinion um, about women having to be let into the Virginia Military Institute. And so it was the first time I saw her in person, heard her in person. And I had had a rather difficult first year of law school, um, which had followed a first year of graduate school where I did the economics graduate sequence. And the crazy gender dynamics in both of those first years was really something that was striking uh, to me. Um, And so to hear her read that decision, uh, I just had tears streaming down my face. Um, And so when I got to meet her in person was when she called me for an interview and she called me for an interview, she said, because at the bottom of my resume, I had written that um, I enjoy swimming, attending the theater, and spending time with my grandparents, um, who they were the reason that got me through both graduate school and law school. I would spend one to two weekends a month with my grandparents. And um, Justice Ginsburg said she had never seen anyone mention their grandparents before. Um, and so that was one of the major topics of our interview. And then I was lucky enough to have this year experience clerking for her. Wow. Did you tell her about hearing her announce the decision in VMI when you interviewed with her? No, I didn't. No. Um, were there any notable cases from the term in which you clerked for her that you want to share with us? Sure. So it was a it was an unusual term in that it started before October. Uh, there were campaign finance cases Uh that were argued in advance of the traditional uh, first Monday in October uh, start. So it meant that all the clerks got there and the workload um, uh, was really high uh, from the start. And those oral arguments were long, right? They were several days of oral argument. Then this is in 2003, 2004. So there were also key war on terror cases that term. Just one, I mean, Hamdi versus Rumsfeld, whether you could hold a a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant just on the basis of a declaration by a Department of Defense uh, official. So there were the, you know, kind of campaign finance and war on terror were the bookends of a sense uh, of critical cases uh, that term. The ones she wrote in, there were kind of a, a slew of statutory interpretation cases, you know, about bankruptcy statutes, uh, two cases she wrote on on ERISA, other uh, uh, statutory uh, interpretation uh, cases. And you can see her kind of careful parsing of statutes uh, in those opinions. Um, some were majorities, uh, some were dissents. Um, Uh, some more concurrences on the statutory uh, interpretation side. And then uh, as someone who uh, teaches or at least taught civil procedure when I was at Berkeley for 14 years, uh, there were some civil procedure cases uh, that term as well. Um, One on uh, diversity uh, jurisdiction, the Grupa data flux case was that term. This is where the parties weren't uh, completely diverse at the start of litigation, but were diverse uh, by the time uh, it got to trial. Um, and Justice Ginsburg dissented uh, uh, f- 
from the court. The court said, no, you had to be completely diverse at the time of filing. And she said, whoa, that's going to have exorbitant costs to have it redone. And um, and there were other, there was a foreign discovery case about that she wrote in where uh, she said that district courts uh, were allowed but not required uh, to provide assistance uh, to foreign tribunals. So there was sort of a range range of the detailed and the broad. Um, it was sort of a phenomenal breadth uh, of cases, as it is, I'm sure, most years. Yeah. You, you ended that discussion talking about procedure. And of course, you know, she was very associated with right procedure cases. She had sort of begun her academic career doing this kind of comparative study of civil procedure in Sweden. She was a, a procedure scholar, among other things, during her time as a law professor, and she always seemed to get the really needy procedural cases. And they're, you know, kind of dry if you like procedure. I think we actually all do probably in this uh, conversation. Um, but they're not you know, I think to her, it wasn't just the intellectual puzzle of it, right? There was like, there were substantive justice implications to the kind of choices that we make about in the way that we understand, you know, access to courts and procedure in courts and things like that. Do you want to talk about that connection for a minute, maybe? Yeah, sure. Maybe I could talk about it as as I interacted with her years later, basically almost a decade later. So in the fall of 2013, Justice Ginsburg came to Berkeley Law and she came to several classes, and um, this was arranged by amazing people uh, at Berkeley, including Amanda Tyler. And Justice Ginsburg came to my civil procedure class and co-taught it. And we had just covered, as maybe some of the listeners on to the podcast um, are thinking about, you know, what do you need to state a claim so it's not dismissed under twelve b six and this had followed uh, decisions in Twombly and in Iqbal, where Justice Ginsburg was in dissent in both of those cases, where the court kind of raised the, the burden um, on those filing claims. And as part of the class, I had given students proposed legislation uh, that would have reinstalled the lower pleading standard, the Conley versus Gibson standard for pleading a claim. We were calling on students, the Justice and I, and many of the students favored this legislation. And then it was really interesting. Justice Ginsburg said, you really want Congress to be making the rules of civil procedure uh, and not the courts? And it was just this moment, right? Because even though she had dissented, even though she preferred the Conley versus Gibson standard, she had such faith in how the federal rules of civil procedure are normally constructed. Of course, Congress can create a rule of civil procedure, um, but normally the rules of civil procedure come through this sort of agency type process uh, within the courts that the Supreme Court eventually signs off on. Um, and that was a process she preferred. And it was a really interesting moment. And then another moment kind of post my clerkship is uh, she had dissented in a case called Shady Grove, uh, which was about Erie. And she, I don't exactly remember where we were, but she grabbed my arm and she said, Anne, you must teach my dissent in Shady Grove. You must teach my dissent in Shady Grove because these were issues that really mattered to her. I really like that. Those are great stories. Yeah, I like the first story because it so well reflects her inner institutionalists and how she just has such faith in if we adhere to institutional safeguards, you know, here being, you know, the courts are the ones who have the role in establishing the rules of civil procedure, then that will lead us to, you know, better, more just, substantive outcomes. And, you know, it's good to have some people with that faith. Yes. Now more than ever. Um, so, so Anne, I, I can't help but notice um, it must have been incredibly nerve-wracking to teach in front of your mentor and judge. So what's going through your mind as you were cold calling with the notorious RBG? I don't know who was the most nervous, right? Was it the student uh, who... I had sort of picked in advance because she was a Cornell undergraduate. And so I thought since Justice Ginsburg had gone to Cornell, like was was Madison the most terrified? Was I the most terrified? Um, I'm not really sure. Madison did a great job. Um, but the justice did at one point in the class say, oh, Anne, you know that case from the 1950s? And my brain is going, what case from the 1950s? Like, what case? Um, so luckily, I didn't have to spit out an answer because I would have had to say, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
it, it sounds, I, I remember that day at Berkeley and, and I remember being very glad that I did not teach in the civil procedure rotation and could merely be a spectator as opposed to an active participant in that. Um, it was, I, I will say from the spectator's position, it was a very um, active and um, engaged session between the justices, the students, and Anne. All right. Um, this is a show that perhaps we should have anticipated having to do, and yet we find ourselves somewhat on the back foot talking about this. Um, how to capture a life and a career that meant so much to so many and had such a profound impact on the law and the way we understand it. I mean, you know, we use her words to open this podcast. Um, like, you know, I can't even imagine what we're going to say to, to conclude this. Um, so Anne, I'm going to give you the last word as, as her clerk. Do you, before we shift into sort of thinking about her jurisprudential legacy more broadly and what comes after, like, do you want to just sort of say something to kind of capture this person who obviously had such importance in your life, but in so many other people's lives as well? That's a hard one to sum up, to sum up the notorious RBG. I guess I would just say on a personal level that her, her life, both professionally and personally, has been so inspirational to me um, to have a career, to have kids, to have a spouse, to know that it's really hard, if not impossible, to have them all in the air going really well at one time. And there's this sort of give and take over time. Um, and that one's career in particular doesn't follow a linear path like her career is from the start not destined uh, to end up at the Supreme Court and and kind of taking advantage of the the many different opportunities um, because they're there and because you're passionate about them and not because they're instrumental in some linear story I I think has been really inspirational to me and I hope to so many others. Thank you Anne. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Um, to just provide a little perspective on what Anne has said and what we will continue to talk about, um, 
Justice Ginsburg was not just a giant of the court. She was actually a giant of women's rights long before she came to the court. Um, She was a law student at Harvard Law School. Um, She was elected to the Harvard Law Review. She transferred to Columbia Law School in her third year because her husband, Martin Ginsburg, had gotten a job at a law firm in New York and Harvard wouldn't allow her to continue as a student at Harvard when she was no longer in residence. So she transferred to Columbia where she was also admitted to the Columbia Law Review. Um, She was denied a diploma from Harvard which subsequent deans offered to rectify. Uh, She held out for an honorary degree, and she received it. And at that honorary degree ceremony, she was honored by Placido Domingo, a noted opera singer. And of course, opera was one of her great passions. Her career in the law began somewhat inauspiciously. Um, Although she was at the top of her class, she was disadvantaged um, by both being a woman and a mother and also by being Jewish. And so she was turned down for employment at many of the law firms that might have welcomed a man with similar credentials. Um, She narrowly missed being a clerk for the Supreme Court. Um, Felix Frankfurter considered her application but ultimately declined to hire her. And it wasn't until her law professor, Jerry Gunther, stepped in um, that Edward Palmieri of the Southern District of New York agreed to take her on as a clerk. And it was noted that... um, Professor Gunther promised that he would never send another clerk to Judge Palmieri if he did not give Justice Ginsburg a chance. Um, When she left her clerkship again, she had a difficult time finding employment. This was when she went off to Sweden to do the project and comparative civil procedure that Kate mentioned. Upon her return, she joined the faculty of Rutgers Law School, where she taught civil procedure, but also pioneered the field of women's rights and sex equality law, writing the first casebook in the field with her very good friend, Herma Hill Kay, who was the first female dean of the University of California, Berkeley. While she was there, she also helped co-found the first law review on women's issues, the Women's Rights Law Reporter. And from there, she began work with the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. And from that position, she litigated such notable cases as Reed versus Reed, where she wrote what she called the grandmother brief for sex equality, in which she also listed Dorothy Kenyon, an earlier feminist thinker, and Polly Murray, um, one of the most undersung feminist thinkers of our age as co-authors. And again, This is all before reaching the court in 1993. She had been a part of some of the most important sex equality cases of the age. And um, this is really amazing. So, Kate, I'm going to drop off a little bit and let you talk about one of the cases that we covered in our book on reproductive rights and justice, Strzok versus Secretary of Defense. Could Could you say a little bit about this case and how important it was to Justice Ginsburg? Sure. And actually, let me just say one more thing, if I could. You know, hearing you talk through her early um, career just brings something to mind, which is that these early, you know, kind of rejections um, were so generative and that they set her on a different path. And, you know, they were it was outrageous and unjust that she was denied access to these halls of power that, you know, she was more than qualified to enter. Um, And yet, you know, sometimes they're those kinds of what feel like failures or rejections can give rise to things that are so much better. And so obviously she um, made an incredible career as a law professor and was able, I think, from her perch in the academy to do the work with the ACLU Women's Rights Project, right, this kind of litigation campaign that I don't know how she would have managed from a perch in a law firm if she had been successful in the first instance of getting one of those jobs. Maybe it all would have ended up uh, in the same way, but I'm not sure. Um, so Melissa mentioned a couple of the cases. So Frontiero is so a Reed versus Reed, uh, the grandmother brief. You know, she files but doesn't actually um, uh, argue the case, right? But in Frontiero versus Richardson, that's the argument. She's there arguing as an amicus, and that's the argument in which she says the words, I ask no favor for my sex, uh, that begins this podcast. Um, and the argument in its entirety is well worth listening to. Actually, as are all of the arguments that she did uh, before the court. Um, Strzok versus uh, Secretary of Defense is not one of them because it was never argued before the Supreme Court, but it's a case that she very dearly wished could be brought before the court. This is all it was playing out in the lower courts in the year or two before Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. Um, and it was a case that involved abortion, um, but in a very different way. So the captain um, a, a, who was a plaintiff in Strzok was a nurse in the Air Force um, who became pregnant and wished to continue in her position and under military policy at the time, um, could not, right, was either required to leave her job or to obtain an abortion, actually, at 
you know, subsidized by the federal government, right, by the military, which was consistent with military policy at the time. Um, and she was a devout Catholic and didn't want to get an abortion. Um, and so she gave birth, gave the child up for adoption and returned um, to her position and from that position challenged the military policy. The case ended up being mooted when I think the Solicitor General, in conjunction with military leadership, intervened um, and implemented a policy change that prevented the case from actually getting before the Supreme Court. But it was a case that would have allowed the justices to confront this sort of constellation of issues involving sex equality, both abortion and, in this case, coerced abortion as opposed to restrictions on abortion, um, but also pregnancy discrimination and sex equality at work more broadly. The, you know, um, the person with whom she was in a relationship was not facing any kind of professional sanctions for his participation, as Justice Ginsburg um, described it in the conception of the child. Um, so there were a number of kind of substantive avenues, right, that 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 she thought that the case kind of opened up. Um, and she, I think, always really regretted that that was not the sort of first of the abortion cases and one of the women's rights cases that she had the chance to take to the justices. You know, I think that Neil Siegel, who wrote the chapter in the book that Melissa and I, along with Riva Siegel, co-edited, um, I think believed in conjunction with kind of conversations that he had with Justice Ginsburg that the path of the law might well have been different had that case made it before the Supreme Court. So it's a path not taken. And there's some great trivia. Um, the Solicitor General who was on the other side of that case was none other than Irving Griswold, who had been the dean of Harvard Law School at the time that Justice Ginsburg was a student and apparently was the dean, um, according to the movie On the Basis of Sex, where he is played by Sam Waterston, um, asked her, you know, why is she in law school? Why are any of these women in law school? And Justice Ginsburg replies that she's there so she can learn to be a more patient wife and understand her husband's career. And some have suggested that she's being a little bit cheeky in that response, um, trolling them, as it were, in the 1950s. And the litigation strategy in Strzok kind of mirrors the path that she took in sex equality, which is in the sex equality cases, she tried to find cases where men were discriminated against and used that to advance a broader principle of sex equality. And in Strzok, she was trying to advance a broader principle that women should be able to have reproductive autonomy and choose whether to have a child. And there, you know, the federal government, the government was trying to tell the woman she could not have a child, but she was, again, using that to advance a more broader principle of choice. So she was a brilliant litigator and strategist and attorney who really, you know, moved the law in this significant respect that has paved the way for so many women after her, you know, after the news of her passing reached. I think Hillary Clinton tweeted out, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg paved the way for so many, including me, um, Justice Kagan and her statement um, on the justice's passing. She said that uh, Ruth reached out to encourage and assist me in my career as she did for so many others long before I came to the Supreme Court and she guided and inspired me on matters large and small. Um, so she was just again, like opening doors for so many women. There was also a really sort of funny off-color aside. Um, I guess after she was nominated, she received a note explaining that she had been known as a quote-unquote bitch, according to some of the men in her class at Harvard Law School. And her reply is truly one for the ages and really needs to be on a tote bag, a shirt, a mug, all of the things really. Um, Her reply was, better bitch than mouse. And I mean, that's that's the tweet. There it is. Amen. Better bitch than mouse. Um, I love that. All right, tote bag is coming. Wait, we, have, we, have to get, we have to get that done. Maybe we could shift gears for a minute and do a quick kind of round robin, um, which, Anne, you should feel free to jump in on um, if you'd like to. Um, just like to highlight now, you know, we've talked about her as a litigator um, and as a boss and as a trailblazer. Um, but as a justice, if we want to highlight opinions that are worth noting of hers uh, from her, you know, nearly 30 years on the Supreme Court, whether those are majorities, dissents, concurrences. Um, anyone want to start? I can start. Um, so I would say her dissent in Herring versus United States, which is part of the series of cases limiting the exclusionary rule. Um, in that case, the court said the exclusionary rule wasn't available when evidence was wrongfully obtained as a result of negligence in maintaining a police database. And the court's majority said it wasn't available because the application of the exclusionary rule would not deter violations. And Justice Ginsburg said that is inconsistent with the entire premise of tort law, which is, of course, you can deter negligence um, through sanctions. And a majority opinion, I would probably say Sessions versus Morales-Santana, which is a 
sex equality case in immigration um, and really, I think, brought the court's immigration cases in line with the sex equality cases um, and specifically the justice opinion in United States versus Virginia um, when the court had kind of veered away from that subsequently. So my two are her dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, which is the famous one in which, um, you know, she is responding to Chief Justice John Roberts, who has argued that there's no longer a need for preclearance requirements for voting because African-American voting in the South has been increasing and increasing um, consistently over time. And it's a kind of racial progress narrative that he documents. And her response to that is the whole line of argument is a little bit like throwing out your umbrella during a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Um, The whole idea, again, is that this works, preclearance works, and that's why um, you've seen this improvement over time. Now is not the time to get rid of it. And, you know, that is the dissent that sort of kicks off this notorious RBG meme that really came to dominate the later part of her life. And I think she was really tickled to find herself being compared to the notorious B.I.G., and she sort of reveled in it. Um, The other case that I wanted to highlight is not one in which she litigated or argued or heard as a jurist, but in which she, as um, a member of the Women's Rights Project, um, was an amicus. And this is a Georgia death penalty case called Coker versus Georgia. And it was about um, the use of the death penalty as a penalty for rape. And she argued that this, the use of the death penalty or capital punishment more generally as a punishment for rape was not a service to women. In fact, this was sort of more evidence of the kind of benign paternalism that characterized um, sex-based classifications. And what I really thought was interesting about it, it's it's not just solely an argument about um, women's rights and sort of feminism and the limits of paternalism, but there is an intersectional lens to this because she talks um, quite movingly in the brief about the way in which the penalties for rape, including the death penalty, are also meant to sort of sequester white women's purity and chastity from the ongoing threat of black sexuality. I mean, so she really understands the way in which the legal system in the South, but not exclusively in the South, is sort of all kind of cohered to create this scenario in which um, women's chastity and purity is being protected because it is both men's property and perhaps um, subject to a threat from an external racialized um, entity. And so I think it's a really important amicus brief and, and one that I think did not get a lot of play when it was first announced, but it's really, I think, remarkable in its breadth. So I would agree with Melissa. My favorite dissent is uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County. And just maybe because it was my first experience uh, uh, with the justice, um, but also just because of its import in in terms of sex uh, discrimination, my favorite majority, seven to one, a majority uh, in the United States versus Virginia striking down the male-only admissions policy at VMI. Um, and a couple more that I would highlight, although I agree with everything that you all have mentioned, her dissent in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, the 2007 opinion in which the court upheld the federal partial birth abortion ban act. Um, and she just took real issue with the, I think, the, the, the substance and the kind of tenor of the Kennedy opinion, um, in particular, it's sort of paternalistic sort of notions about protecting women, right, from the regrets that they might experience based on their own choices. Um, she she writes that the court shields women by denying them any choice in the matter. Uh, this way of protecting women recalls ancient notions about women's place in society and under the Constitution, ideas that have long since been discredited. I always wondered whether the sort of, you know, that the, the language was sharp. Um, and, you know, she sort of conspicuously didn't write, didn't like get to write the opinions um, in the two, you know, most recent abortion cases um, out of Texas and Louisiana. Um, and I wondered, you know, it, it always felt like a little bit of a loss that Breyer and not Ginsburg wrote those opinions. And I wondered whether, you know, lingering bad blood about the Gonzalez opinion, because the dissent was a harsh one. Um, and I think fairly so. Um, and then actually a majority opinions, you know, and she didn't have a ton in some way, you know, look, she sat, you know, on the, on the left of the Rehnquist Court and the Roberts Court. And so she was not the median justice who was assigned a lot of the big opinions. She had huge uh, procedure opinions, for sure, um, but in other kinds of areas. Um, but but her opinion in the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case in t- 2015, I think, is actually a really important one um, that sort of, you know, vindicates principles of democratic legitimacy um, and, um, you know, upholds by five 
for vote. Um, the decision by the voters of Arizona just to, you know, take the process of drawing legislative districts away from self-interested legislators and instead to put it in an independent commission, um, which, you know, in light of the Supreme Court sort of shutting the door to federal constitutional challenges to gerrymandering is one of the few ways that remain for voters in states to try to make sort of democracy and kind of legitimacy meaningful. But it's a great sort of deep dive in constitutional language, constitutional logic, constitutional history, and it's well worth the read. So I know that to some extent it might seem ghoulish or crass to start discussing the politics of this all, the implications for the court, what a new justice will mean for our country, and the implications for the presidency and the Senate. Um, But I also think that not to discuss it would be a disservice to the country um, and dishonor Justice Ginsburg and Justice Ginsburg's dying wish and kind of amount to unilateral disarmament since Republicans are already out there talking about the importance of filling this seat, including the president himself um, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So the time is now, like whether we want it to be or not. um, And the fight is here, though there will also be fights after November. As um, guest Ellie Mistal wrote in The Nation, and I'm just quoting from him here, I would like to mourn her, but even Ginsburg herself realized there would be no time for that. Her deathbed dictation should not be read as the fleeting hope bubbles of a dying old lady, but as a dying dissent about what we must do. And he was referring, of course, to the statement that she dictated to her granddaughter um, as her strength was waning. And that statement was, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. So, you know, this is where we wanted to take the conversation, you know, the stakes for the court and the country um, with her passing and possible replacement by President Trump. And I don't I think we have to talk about it in the context of the 2016 decision right by Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate to deny a hearing to Barack Obama's nominee Merrick Garland right to who, who who was the nominee to replace Justice Scalia who died in February of 2016 um and though that was 10 months out from the November election um the position taken by Republican leadership in the Senate was that it was sort of it was necessary to wait until the people spoke uh, in November before the seat was filled. Um, and so that was a position that was taken then. So that's an important, I think, piece of the backdrop against which everything is right now unfolding. So I thought the framing and the way she dictated this sort of dying declaration to her granddaughter was really interesting. It wasn't that she wanted to or it was her fervent wish that she her replacement be named after the election. She specifically said a new president, which, you know, maybe is that a kind of clarion call, a rallying call to the Democrats to get out the vote, like to be more systematic about turning out the base than they were in 2016? I mean, it's a very specific call as opposed to just waiting until the election. I I mean, I think it is a statement about what another nominee by this president would do to the court on issues that she cares about. Like she is trying to open people's eyes to the practical consequences and the reality about what that appointment would do. So we've talked a lot about, you know, how the chief justice this past term was a median justice on the Supreme Court. Um, If, however, President Trump replaces Justice Ginsburg, he will no longer be the median justice. The median justice will shift to being Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, or, you know, Amy Coney Barrett or Barbara Lagoa on the 11th Circuit or whoever the new nominee is. So you that is in the abstract what this world looks like. But to make it concrete, you know, you can think about the consequences for some of the decisions from this past term. If one of those justices had been on the court instead of Justice Ginsburg, the DACA rescission would have been upheld as lawful. The president could be deporting dreamers. The Louisiana abortion law that would have closed two of the three clinics in the state would have been upheld as constitutional. These are just realities about how those decisions would have come out. And I think the more difficult question that is harder to pin down is what other decisions might have been affected as well. Because of course, the media injustice can affect the negotiations and the direction of the court in ways that are happening behind the scenes that we can't see simply by the vote breakdown. So we discussed, for example, Joan Biskupic's end of term reporting in which she said that the initial vote breakdown in the presidential tax case out of New York was 5-4 with the chief justice joining the four 
more liberal justices to allow the subpoena and the four other conservatives saying the subpoena could not proceed. So if Justice Ginsburg hadn't been there, then that vote would have gone the other way quite possibly. Like we don't know if the chief would have pulled over one of the five conservative justices in that hypothetical world to join him in allowing the subpoena to proceed. We don't know if the Title VII cases would have come out the same way. We don't know if Ramos would have come out the same way. Like changing the median justice can affect things behind the scenes in ways that affect the ultimate outcomes. It may also change, I think, the chief justice's behavior himself. I mean, I think part of being the swing justice is the position in which he is best situated to play out his sort of institutionalist leanings. And if he's not in that position, you know, maybe he does feel more free to kind of join the conservative wing of the court um, in a more full-throated fashion. And we don't even get the kinds of nods that we saw in this particular term. Well, and he could even do that and frame it in institutionalist terms, at least in his own mind, by sort Mm -hmm. of saying better to join and control assignments in the majority that is a strong conservative, you know, six-member majority than to defect and potentially see the law change even more rapidly. And you can also think about this looking ahead to the next term and the cases that this could affect not only the outcome, but also the rationale. So we have this major case involving the Affordable Care Act, in which thus far, every Republican appointed judge has said the amended individual mandate is now unconstitutional. And as a result, some other provisions in the Affordable Care Act, like the protections for people with pre-existing conditions, might also fall. So I think that as this case was making its way up to the Supreme Court, we were greeted with, you know, repeated statements along the lines of there's just no way this case is ever going to go anywhere. The arguments are so ludicrous. And it's true that the arguments are ludicrous. But once you move the median justice away from the chief justice and towards someone like Neil Gorsuch or Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito, the world looks very different. And again, it's hard to overstate how, you know, this case, its entire outcome affecting this major law as a country is dealing with a pandemic could be changed just by this one appointment. Um, You know, there are other significant cases that the court is hearing, including a bunch of criminal justice cases like the retroactivity of Ramos and whether individuals who were convicted using non-unanimous juries um, could have their convictions overturned. I think people thought it was possible that the court would say that rule is retroactive in a world in which the chief justice was a median justice. Now it seems like a pipe dream or this Jones versus Mississippi about when states can sentence juveniles to life without parole. Again, the possibility of the court adhering to its prior decisions in Miller and Montgomery now also seems like a long shot. Or you have cases like Torres versus Madrid, where the question is, have the police stopped someone when they physically shoot them, but the person is able to continue moving? And these are just some of the issues that could be changed by a new nominee. And we're not even talking about other areas of law that aren't currently on the court's docket. So can I ask what we think about, um, you know, we have talked about institutional legitimacy, uh, what sometimes felt like this kind of oversimplification or sort of misapprehension of what that idea might mean in the sort of end of the last term. But what we think, you know, if we do in a deep way care about the court and its institutional legitimacy, what, what rushing a nominee before the Senate and potentially the confirmation before the election um, could do to the sort of perception and reality of, of, of the court's legitimacy? Obviously, it would be damaging, certainly. Um, the question is, do they want to risk damaging the court's legitimacy? Do they even care about the court's legitimacy? And you know, the one scenario that Leah did not mention that is likely next term is the fact that if this is a contested election, it will wind up in the court itself. And, you know, that is something also to take into consideration in the sort of strategy on the Republican side about what to do about this now vacant seat. Is it to nominate someone and rush them through now in the event that this is a contested election that will go to the court? Um, Do you not because you care about the court's legitimacy and then this is thrown to the courts because it's a contested election and we only have an eight-member court and maybe, you know, we're not able to get a decision because they fracture. Not sure how that looks, but maybe that's a possibility. Or they do decide and they decide in favor of the president. Who knows? Um, But I think a lot of the scenarios about what they do all kind of depend on the possibility of the election not being obvious on election night, the outcome not being obvious. Um, 
the composition of the Senate, certainly, and then just sort of what the political will around whatever they're doing is. I mean, we turned out so many women for the Women's March. Um, are we going to be this exercise to go stand in front of the court or stand in front of the Capitol and insist that the people be heard on this question? I don't know. I mean, there's no question that this will affect the legitimacy of the courts. And I think that's how we should understand the statements that are coming up as people are pointing out that Lindsey Graham, McConnell, and others said, you know, we won't confirm someone in an election year because it's for the people to choose. Pointing out their hypocrisy is not because they can be shamed into being consistent. They have shown that they are simply not capable of shame. It is instead to highlight what it is they are doing. It is a transparent power grab. They are just slashing and burning institutions, norms, procedures, left and right, all in the name of preserving their own power and pushing through policies, you know, for which they lack democratic consensus and a democratic warrant. You know, Melissa mentioned the possibility of a contested election. Um, that's something that we are seeing with a president's campaign, you know, attempting to limit voting and discredit absentee voting and Republican legislatures, you know, refusing to loosen up restrictions on absentee voting, even in the midst of the pandemic. Um, we're seeing the president destroy norms of institutional independence and deference to expertise, you know, in the response to the pandemic. We're seeing them try to destroy the Affordable Care Act, which they couldn't do through the democratic process now in the courts. This is what they do. And they are putting the court in the continued crosshairs this time, just like they have before. I mean, Mitch McConnell has now, if they confirm this nominee, stolen two seats on a court through, you know, conveniently naked, obvious, transparent changes to old bipartisan rules of nomination, not holding hearing for Merrick Garland, and now insisting that that rule applies only when, you know, the presidency and the Senate are in different hands. No, it doesn't. Like, you frame that entire rule as... The people need a say in determining who the next Supreme Court justice is. That principle applies no matter whether the president and the Senate are different parties. It means the people get a say in determining the next Supreme Court justice. And it is just appalling to see the absurd things that people like Ted Cruz and others are saying. Like, we need a nine-member court in an election year because an eight-member court might not be able to resolve election issues. That was true in the 2016 election, of course, when you were totally okay with an eight-member court. So all of these arguments are just transparently ludicrous. And pointing out their transparency and hypocrisy, again, is not because I think Ted Cruz has a shred of principle or integrity to him. It is instead to expose what is happening, which is, again, they are totally content just burning everything to the ground if they can hold on to power for another day. The unfairness as opposed to the hypocrisy somehow seems to me to be something that people may mo could mobilize around. And the other thing that I think, I mean, I think you're completely right, this idea that you could, you know, write this revisionist history in which the salient feature of 2016 and the refusal to consider Garland was the, you know, split party control of the presidency and the Senate is sort of facially absurd. Um, but it is also the case that it is not as though there is an election looming. Like, obviously, we're closer to an election than we were in February of 2016. The election is already happening, happening right? Yes, so yeah. states have started voting. So in four states this week, People started voting in person. There are hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots. We may actually be in the millions now that have already been mailed. Um, and over the course of the next week, I think something like 20 states are going to start having early in-person voting. So, you know, even if their arguments held some water in ordinary times, and I don't know, I don't think they do, it can't possibly be the case that if democratic legitimacy means anything, you can you know, ram through a nominee while we are actually in the midst of an election in which the people will have uh, some voice. That's the question. Like, do they even care about democratic legitimacy? Yesterday at a rally in Minnesota, he not only talked about the seat, I mean, he has been anticipating filling this seat for over a year now and, and nakedly talking about her demise well in advance of yesterday. And Yesterday in his rally, he talked about being able to fill not one seat, not two seats, not three seats, but actually four. I mean, so he's thinking of a complete takeover of the court and 
this is just the first domino that will set off a chain reaction, in his view, that leads to a gold-plated court that looks like Trump Tower. Yeah, I mean, this is what they have wanted to do. Like, they have wanted to pack the courts, and they are packing the courts. Every one of the current seats on the Supreme Court has become vacant in the last 30 years when Republicans won one of the popular electoral votes of seven, and yet they might fill six of the nine seats. And again, it will be with two stolen seats that were stolen on the basis of just ludicrous changes in procedural rules. You know, Mitch McConnell trotted out this made-up Biden rule, which now I'm remembering what was referring to statements by Joe Biden about a hypothetical future nomination by a Bush administration after the contentious nomination and confirmation of Clarence Thomas. So it wasn't about an actual vacancy or an actual nomination. That rule never existed, and it defied historical practice, and yet Mitch McConnell was keen to invent it, and now he's yanking it away. It's just, it is truly absurd how brazen they are and they have been and how successful they have been at being so brazen and at packing the courts so that they can, you know, do what they want to get done. To kind of tie this conversation to both the notorious RBG more broadly and to the statement that she dictated in her final days to her granddaughter, um, is there a way to somehow channel the energy that RBG emanated out into the world um, to actually try to implement her desire that her seat not be filled, at least not right now, right? At least not in advance of the election. I think maybe the question gets different between the election and the inauguration, but at least between now and November 3rd, in that, you know, you have, so the notorious RBG meme, you know, originates in a Tumblr and just sort of spreads like wildfire through the culture, right? We've now all gone shopping, I presume, in like the, you know, the kind of RBG spin out section of our local independent bookstores because the amount of children's inspiring children's stories that have been spawned by the notorious RBG and sticker books and temporary tattoos and the list goes on. There is, you know, but so far, like apart from moving product and inspiring people, um, the energy hasn't been challenged and sort of put to kind of political purposes. And A, is there a way to do that? You you know, so to get a younger generation um, mobilized in ways that they might not have been because they were not as excited about Joe Biden as other potential Democratic nominees. Um, so that's question one. And I think question two, um, you know, middle-aged white women who actually voted, the majority of them, for Donald Trump in 2016, um, could somehow they be mobilized to go get their people and in a way by this and by Justice Ginsburg's, you know, sort of dying words um, in a way that could on the margins in a close election make a real difference. From your mouth to God's ears. I, I mean, I think that the best people can do is talk to other people about it, devote an increased focus to Senate races to try to take back the Senate and to, again, do what they can in the lead up to the election and to be as loud and as vocal as they can about what Republicans are doing to the Supreme Court, the stakes of this nomination. And, you know, it is easy to despair given, again, how unprincipled and power grabby the Republicans have been. But if you just resign yourself to that fate, then we will definitely have lost. Better bitch than mouse. Exactly. Um, just the thought of this feminist icon being replaced by this rank misogynist who brags about sexually assaulting women is just very difficult for some of us. I mean, well, I mean, I mean, like the same week that she dies, yet another woman comes forward to say that the president has sexually harassed her. I mean, like how many of these mo- and, and, and it, sexually assaulted how- her, sexually assaulted her, Melissa, right? I mean, I can't even keep up. I mean, how many of these? And it's of no moment. I mean, we're so anesthetized to it. I mean, you're exactly right, Leah. The idea of her being replaced by this person is just vomitous and gross. All right, let's end on a high note. (laughs) So um, thank you, Anne, for joining us. Yes, and we wanted to have you for a long time. We're sorry that this is the occasion, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, And thank you to all of our listeners with a special shout out to our Glow subscribers who make this show possible. If you'd like to go the extra mile to support the podcast, you can do so at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. And as always, we are grateful to our wonderful producer, Melody Rowell, and Eddie Cooper, who does our music, including putting Justice Ginsburg's words to sound.
Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 